6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Misser completes his session entitled, The Post-Exile History. So, the, the second banquet, when uh, Esther has the uh, king and Haman present, king says, okay, what's on your heart? She says, I'd like my life to be spared. And the king is shocked. What do you mean, your life being spared? She explains, she's Jewish, and he signed this decree of all Jews killed. And he, of course, is so shook up by that, he is so shook by this, that he can't even respond. He, in fact, says, wait a minute, he, he goes out on the balcony to compose himself as he thinks through the implications of this. He begins to realize not only his beloved queen is Jewish, but he realizes that Haman engineered this. He's a victim. So he's really, he's out on the balcony for a bit. While he's out, Haman realizes his life's at risk, and he falls on his knees in front of the couch that Esther's on, pleading for his life. Haman realizes he's in jeopardy. As he does so, when the king walks back in, he misconstrues, he thinks he's attacking the queen. And he's really upset now. <laughs> so Haman falls on the couch to plead. The king misconstrues the move and orders Haman hanged, or more precisely, impaled. And he gets impaled on the very gallows that he built for, guess who? Mordecai. It gets worse. Haman's entire estate is this cheat to the crown, and it is set under Mordecai's supervision. <laughs> Do you see a little irony here? Isn't God great? Now, the king can't undo the decree that's gone throughout the realm. It's already a done deal. But he's regretted it. So all he can do, the next best thing, he issues a second degree, a decree, which authorizes the Jews to defend themselves in 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. He also instructs all the magistrates of the king to assist them. So the Jews, uh, obviously, and they, cel they celebrate this whole event every year at the Feast of Purim. Purim is the word, Hebrew word for lot, because they cast lots to determine the date earlier in the story. An incidental thing, I won't go through the details, because I'm sure the, the text is probably hard to read on the screen, but the ten sons of Haman are also uh, crucified, or impaled. And as you read the Persian names and try to decipher them, you discover they, the ten names mean curious self or busybody, weeping self, self-pity, assembled self, self-mobilized, self-sufficient, generous self, spendthriftiness or self-indulgence, weak self, self-consciousness, strong self-assertiveness, insisting on one's own way, uh, preeminent self, ambition, and so on, bold self, imprudence, dignified self, prude, haughtiness, what have you, and pure self, worst of all, self-righteousness. But it's interesting that the names of his ten sons exemplify self-traits that stand in the way of a relationship with God. 
all of us need to hang our sons of Haman uh, in our lives. But let's move on. The book of Esther is often disparaged by some. Even Luther said it shouldn't be in the Bible because the name of God does not appear in the book. Well, that's kind of interesting. But see, the word Esther means something hidden. So let me share with you some surprises. There are hidden codes in the book of Esther. There are five acrostics that are well known among Talmudic scholars. And I published those in our news journal many years ago. And one of our subscribers is a rabbi by the name of Yaakov Ramsel who sent me a note. He says, by the way, Chuck, there's three others you don't know about. Let me share them with you. In Esther verse 1 and verse 20, there's an acrostic that spells uh, yad heh vav heh which is the, you know, the, the unpronounceable name of God. It's the initial letters of these four words because the event that's being alluded to there is initial, but it spells God's name backwards because He's turning back the counsels of man. Okay, cute little thing. Esther 5, again we have initial letters because God's initiating the action, but it, there, it's, this time it's spelled forward because God is ruling and causing Esther to act. Kind of curious. Esther chapter 5, again we have Yad-Heh-Vav-Heh, uh, the final letters of the words, because Haman's, Haman's end is approaching. They're written backwards because God is overruling Haman's gladness and turning back Haman's counsel. And in Esther 7, 7, you've got again Yad-Heh-Vav-Heh, that is, uh, it's final because Haman's end had come, and forward because God is ruling and bringing about the end that he had determined. Now these interpretations are the rabbinic interpretations, why they're forward or backward, first whether they're a forward acrostic or a backward acrostic, and whether they're spelled forward or backward. You see there's four different things here. And so the pairing, see the, the first two, the initial letters are used because the facts are initial, and the last two are final letters because the facts are final. The first one's backward, the second one's forward, and the third one's backward, the fourth one's forward. The ones that are backward are gen deal with the Gentiles, the ones that are forward deal with the Israelites. Because Israelites read that direction, the Gentiles that direction. There's also cases of introversion. The words spoken concerning a queen versus words spoken by a queen, or the words spoken by Haman, or the words concerning Haman. There's a interest. There's structure every place you look here. There's even one where King Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, "Who is he, and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so?" This is when the king finds out that she's she's under threat here. It's interesting that in the Hebrew of that phrase. If you, f you find the word, uh, I am. Ichya, okay. In Esther chapter 1, verse 3, there's an equidistant letter sequence of the interval of eight. Interval of eight. If you look at those letters, you find the word Mashiach. And it's eight. Just as 666 is the number of Satan, 888 is the number of, of, of Messiah. There's also another one in Esther 4, verses 7 in which it spells Yeshua, Jesus. And then there's another one in the intervals of 7 in Esther 4, verse 2, that is El Shaddai, the Almighty. But uh, Ramsel mentions another one. He says, Chuck, this one you'll get a kick out of. This is an interval of 6. Okay, you ready for this? In interval of six, in the Hebrew it says, Haman and Satan stink. <laughs> <laughs> Something hidden. Now you certainly don't use those to build doctrine, but in, in cryptology would be called authentication codes. 
the little hints there that it's by design. Those things don't happen by accident. You can quickly convince yourself that there's no way it could happen randomly. The book of Nehemiah, Rebuilding of the City. In this case, we're going to move up to Artaxerxes I, Artaxerxes called Langemanus, that we've already talked about a little bit. And uh, as we mentioned, you know, Esther's the end of Ezra, then we have the book of Nehemiah, during which we find the decree of Artaxerxes, which of course triggers the 30 weeks of Daniel. And uh, so we have the various prophets also supplementing that. Something as you get through Ezra and Nehemiah that I like to point out for your own understanding, there are people that try to build, on the one hand, people make mistakes by not being precise enough in the Scripture, but there's also a, a corollary type of error where you make precision where there isn't precision intended, splitting hairs, so to speak. There are people that try to build huge cases about the term Jews versus Israelite. The Jew represents Judah and not Israel. There are some places where that's true, there's some places where it's not. I want to alert you to something. After the Babylonian captivity, the terms Jew and Israelite are used interchangeably. I'm asserting that. I want you to check it out for yourself. Ezra calls the returning remnant Jews eight times. He calls them Israel forty times. They're used interchangeably. All Israel, and these are in Ezra 2, 3, 8, 10, so forth. Lots of places. Nehemiah also uses Jews 11 times, Israel 22 times. See the point I'm trying to make? They're used interchangeably. All Israel, being back in the land, Nehemiah 12, verse 47, and so on. Malachi speaks the remnant as the nation, uh, Malachi 1, 1, and so forth. In the New Testament, well, in the New Testament, Anna, you may recall, in Luke 2, knew her tribal identity as the tribe of Asher. Not ten lost tribes. The ten lost tribes is a myth of literature. It accrues from a misunderstanding of Second Chronicles 11 and a lot of other passages. It's a myth. I'm accepting the tribe of Dan. It did spin out in some strange ways. But the idea of the, North, you know, the lost tribes, they had faithful of all twelve go south before the captivity. The idol worshippers went north and got wiped out. Paul knew he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He calls himself a Jew and an Israelite in Romans 11, verse 1. The New Testament uses the word Israel 75 times, the word Jew 174 times. At the Feast of Pentecost, Peter cries, Ye men of Judea, Acts 2. Ye men of Israel, Acts 2, same chapter, seven, eight verses later. All the house of Israel in Acts 2. All three terms Peter is using to the people he's talking to. Anyway, let's move on. We had the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, and the Greek Empire. In the Greek Empire, of course, we had the Septuagint. I've alerted you to that so far. There's another guy that shows up that's important by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He's not an important guy in secular history. Antiochus III is called Antiochus the Great. Antiochus IV is a guy that shows up who's very important biblically. And Antiochus IV, he came to power in about 175 B.C. In about 170 uh, uh, B.C., Ptolemy of Egypt sought to recover territory ruled over by Antiochus. And uh, so he invaded Egypt and defeated Ptolemy VI and proclaimed himself king of Egypt. Upon return from his conquest, trouble broke out in Jerusalem. So he decided to subdue Jerusalem. Uh, and people were subjugated, the temple desecrated, the temple treasury plundered. 
and uh, from his conquest, Antiochus returned to Egypt, but was forced by Rome then to evacuate Egypt, because Rome's getting powerful by now. So he's really upset about all of this. So he's, he's taking it all out on Jerusalem, which is a buffer state between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire. So he plunders and desecrates the temple, and he calls himself Epiphanes, the, the uh, illustrious one. The kids on the street called him Epimenes, which means the madman. He made Torah reading, reading the Torah, the five books of Moses, punishable by death. He forced the Jews to eat desecrated foods, unclean foods. He slaughtered a sow on the altar. If you know how the Jews feel about pork and how they feel about their holy altar in Jerusalem, uh, you can imagine how that went over. But he didn't stop there. His big event was to erect an idol to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. See, an abomination in the Bible is idol worship. Any idol is an abomination to God. He says, Lord, Lord thy God is a jealous God, and so forth. The most abominable of them all is an idol that is erected in the Holy of Holies, in the most sacred spot. If you read one and salt God, you don't only get an idol. You put it in the most sacred spot on the planet Earth, in Jerusalem, in the temple. In fact, in the holy place. No, in the Holy of Holies. And that's exactly what he did. And that precipitated the Maccabean Revolt. Mattathias, a patriotic priest, had five sons. And one of the sons, Judas Maccabeus, was uh, an incredible military genius. They actually threw off the yoke of the Seleucid Empire. It took them three years. They took the temple vessels that had been desecrated, destroyed them, made new ones, and rededicated the temple. All this was on Antiochus Epiphany's birthday. He erected an idol on his birthday, 25th of Kislev on the Jewish calendar. The third anniversary of all this, when they finally were strong enough to do that, they rededicate the temple, and that is celebrated to this day by Hanukkah. Now Hanukkah, like all holidays, they have some colorful legends around it, but the real point of Hanukkah is the rededication of the temple. And it is, it is authorized in the New Testament, in John 10, verse 22. So Hanukkah has, has, a, has a biblical relevance. Why? Because Jesus makes reference to this. Jesus has a, four disciples come to Jesus about his return, Peter, James, and John, and also Andrew, James, uh, Peter's brother. And they have a private briefing on a second coming. It's recorded in three of the Gospels. We'll take the, Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13, Luke 21. And we'll take a quick look at Matthew 24. These all point to Daniel as the key to end-time prophecy. Let's take the Matthew account. Sat up on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the age? Good question. We're very interested. He gives them a two-chapter answer. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. He opens and closes his presentation by telling them not to let themselves get deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. You shall hear wars and rumors of wars. See that ye not be troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. They're not signs. Some people list these as signs. No, they're not signs. The end is not yet. For a nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines, pestilence, earthquakes, and diverse places. All these are but the beginning of sorrows. But they're really not signs. He's going to tell us what signs are. The end is not yet. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. 
Let's pause right there. How can somebody see something that's standing in the holy place? The holy place, the holy of holies, is only the high priest can go in there and only once a year after a great ceremony of preparation. But he's going to tell them, let them which be in Judea flee the mountains when you see this. How can they see this? On CNN. This is a politically, I'm not, I'm not being flippant, this is a political event. And when they are conscious of it happening, Jesus says, you split and you split right now. Don't even go gra grab your coat. You get out of there. Though, let them which be in Judea flee in the mountains. Notice he says, Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. We covered that before. He authorized, and he points to Daniel 9 in this passage. Who's so real? Let him understand. Do your homework, he's saying. Let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is in the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. And pray that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. What has the Sabbath day got to do with anything? They'll be celebrating the Sabbath at this time. He's talking to Jews. See, pray, the Jew has a problem. How do you flee on a Sabbath day? You pray that it's not on a Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. In other words, it's going to be worse than the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. Except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. The entire world is at risk. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Well, of course, we have the Roman Empire, phase one, emerging as we speak. So these things are all taking shape. And I won't go through the whole... Uh, I've mentioned a couple of things here. That Pompey conquered, conquered Judea in 63 B.C. Herod Antipater was an Edomite. And he was, appointed, uh, he was appointed to rule, but he had to stay in Rome. It was too dangerous. In 40 B.C., the Parthians conquered Judea. In 37, the Ro Romans again regained Judea. So Herod the Great succeeds Antipater, who was not very popular. But the point is, even though he's appointed by Rome, he can't rule there until he's safe enough to get there, because Judea is a buffer state between two rival empires, the Roman Empire to the west and the Parthian Empire to the east. 31 B.C., we have the Battle of Actium. That's where the Republic becomes an empire under Augustus. We have the registration and census ordered that we see in the Gospel period. In 7 A.D., the Roman procurator, he removes the, or the right of capital punishment from the Sanhedrin. They can no longer administer the death penalty. You and I figure, well, that's a legal technicality. No, they understood what that meant. The high priests... Went, the, the Babylonian Talmud records how the high priest put on sackcloth and ashes and marched through Jerusalem singing, Woe unto us, for the scepter is departed from Judah and the Messiah has not come. They thought the word of God had been broken because in Genesis 49 verse 10, Jacob prophesied that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until the Messiah comes, till Shiloh comes. Because the scepter departed, they thought the word of God had been broken. They actually thought that. What they didn't know was that up in Nazareth, in a carpenter shop, there was a young boy growing up to manhood. He had come, they just didn't know it. As we savor the drama of this incredible story of Esther, we should recognize there's some very key lessons here. God, of course, although operating invisibly behind the scenes, was clearly orchestrating His plan for caring for His people. But it's also interesting how this transcends generations. Mordecai, the hero of the peace in a sense, was actually a result of David's grace in that he didn't 
yield to the calls to stone Shemei, from whom Mordecai descended. Haman was the result of Saul's failure. If Saul had done what Samuel told him to do, to kill the king of Agag, there never would have been a Haman. Are there implications of all of this today? Are there things that trans transcend generations? Well, let me mention an example. I'm indebted to my friend Joe Foch, who's the senior pastor of the Calvary Chapel in Philadelphia, for this delightful discovery. Edward Kimball had a burden for one of his Sunday school students to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So he went to see him at the shoe store where he worked, and he led him to Jesus Christ in that store. The name of this young student was Dwight L. Moody. His ministry has rocked several continents. Well, while Moody was preaching in the British Isles, he spoke at a small chapel pastored by Frederick Brotherton Meyer. In this sermon, Moody told an emotionally charged story of a Sunday school teacher he knew who personally went to every student in his class and won them to Jesus Christ. The message changed Pastor Meyer's entire ministry and inspiring him to become an evangelist. And over the years, Meyer came to America several times to preach. Once in Northfield, Massachusetts, a confused young preacher sitting in the back row heard Meyer say, if you're not willing to give everything to God, are you willing to be made willing? And that remark led J. Wilbur Chapman to accept the call of God on his life. Chapman went on to become one of the most effective evangelists of his time. A volunteer who helped Chapman's crusades uh, learned to preach by watching him. His name was Billy Sunday. <laughs> Sunday eventually took over Chapman's ministry, becoming one of the most effective evangelists in the 20th century. In the great arenas of the nation, Billy Sunday's preaching turned thousands to Christ. Well, inspired by a 1924 Billy Sunday crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina, a committee of Christians committed themselves to reaching that city for Christ. And they invited Mordecai Ham to hold a series of evangelistic meetings in 1932. A lanky 16-year-old sat in the crowd one evening and spellbound by the message of this white-haired preacher who seemed to be shouting and waving his long finger directly at him. Night after night, the youth attended and finally went forward to give his life to Christ. That teenager's name was Billy Graham. <laughs> Billy Graham has obviously communicated the gospel of Jesus Christ to more people than anyone else in the history of the world. Now remember how this sequence began. A nobody named Kimball, concerned for one of his students, visited him at a shoe store. In doing that, Kimball changed the world. Millions upon millions have been affected by his decision to go to that shoe store, and millions more will continue to feel its impact. My question to you is, can anything like that happen today? You know, it's interesting to uh, realize that, obviously, without him, without God, we can't. But the flip side of that is, without us, he won't. So one of the things I want to ask you, what do you think about these things? What's your view? And what are you going to do about these things? Jesus said, Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Well, in the next hour, when we meet again, we'll be uh, looking at the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are the major prophets. We've already covered Daniel. We'll talk about Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. 
as uh, incredible, incredible treasures. And let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we stand in awe of your word. We just thank you for who you are. And we thank you that you care so much for us to have gone to such extremes that we might live. We thank you for your word, the incredible treasures that are tucked in every nook and cranny. We thank you for the joy of your word. We thank you for the comfort of your word. But above all, Father, we thank you that your word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you, Father, that through the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, we have access to you. We have an opportunity to be clothed in your righteousness, his righteousness, not our own. Oh, Father, we thank you. We would pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would open our understanding to your word. You alone, Father, can blindfold our prejudices and help us to set aside the baggage of misconceptions we picked up along the way. Help us to understand what you're saying and what you mean. We ask that through the Holy Spirit, Father. Let him be our real teacher. That each of us might grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. And Father, we would pray that we each would be would become more fruitful stewards of the opportunities you've placed before us. Help us to understand what you would have of us in the days that remain. As we commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.